Just a quick note, this is a two-part podcast. Part two of this podcast will be on the Patreon feed. Welcome back, listeners. Another episode of Escape from Planet for you. I'm your host for tonight, Chris, here with Teen, Liza, and Jess. What's up? Yay! Hey, hey, hey. Happy Hello. New Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year, everyone. It hasn't been the four of us in a long time. In fact, it's, I feel it's like really I'm in back in 2018. Ever. It's just that I haven't I been talked to long? Liza in, in, in a while. Like, no, know, I talk like to you every meetings. day in like Discord. In Discord, but in like on a pod and stuff. It's been a with while. With an audience, yeah. Several, at least several weeks. Several weeks, but maybe months. Almost months. I I think say. months. Yeah. I well, think, uh, we did that. We did that one, but I don't think it got released. Oh, Wait, with Karthik. Yeah, we we. I still have that. I still oh, have okay. that one. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll put that together. All right. Uh, well, I'm so glad uh, four of us are together. As I said, it feels like old times. Back in like you know 2017, slash 2018. OG I'm still crew. living in that dingy little studio, my uh, little go mic talking to my bookshelf, and we were all too much on Twitter and caring too much about what certain people mm. whom we should not care about thought. <laughs> but new year, new era, and we're together for a new purpose. And if listeners, if you are Patreon subscribers and you listen to the latest bonus episodes, Tina and me, and we alluded to this episode that we'd wanted to do that focused on... Well, we would start talking about our uh, love for certain oldish technologies like film cameras and typewriters and what, what it really speaks to uh, a broader, uh, the, the, you know, the things we lose when everything is too digitized. So that's the topic we want to get to today. I think of it uh, as like a movement. I really do. There should be a oh, there's a larger, there's definitely a larger there's, movement. There's huge yeah. things at play here and they're all converging at at different times and, and and like over the course of like probably decades mm-hmm. that have led Maybe to Maybe I'm this. getting a little bit ahead of myself, but like, I'll say like the last couple of days I spent, so I got this new typewriter, this Olympia SM4, a beautiful typewriter. It's probably from the late 50s. It's, it's working great. There's a slight hitch to it in that the carriage hits the case when you return it. Uh, Teen, I don't know if your typewriter had any issues out of the box, but you know, apparently this is a common problem with this typewriter so the last few days i've been online trying to search how to repair it i tried one method it didn't work so so it's like i'm trying to solve a problem and I, you know i'm going to the hardware store i'm buying these like little knickknacks like these rubber Did you stoppers buy it from ebay stuff. or from like bought, yeah okay and i think the the process of trying to solve a problem even a very mm-hmm. small problem like i have this very minor little uh, defect on my on my old typewriter is something that if you are if you grew up in a world where everything is streamlined for you everything is done for you you have no idea how anything works because everything is just given to you and then something goes wrong you just become very <laughs> helpless have you guys ever seen uh have you seen the uh season two of white the white lotus i just finished seeing it um, I, I only not. watched season one and i was so disappointed i could not continue to season two okay I just bring it up because there's a character there who's supposed to be like in her mid-20s, is supposed to be like a Zoomer, and she's just so helpless. She's just like uh, very whiny and can't do anything. And I, I think a problem with that is, is um, and I'm not exempting our generation from it, but if you don't actually ever get to solve problems, especially little problems and, and 
realize you can actually fix things, you just just give up very easily. But anyway, I think well, I'm getting ahead of it's, myself. It's you know, it's funny. I was kind of laughing a little when you were saying that because like today, literally, I went to the Google store. There is such a thing as a Google store now. And what do they sell? Gross. Google stuff like yeah, Pixel. Well, what, wait, phones. what? Yeah, it's like an Apple store, but it's a Google store. You just mean the one in Chelsea? Phone? Uh, yeah. Well, I went to the one in Williamsburg. Um, okay. but I went there because like my wife's phone, her Pixel phone, the the USB-C port doesn't quite work. It, like, you know how it's supposed to be bi-directional or, yeah. or it doesn't matter which way you plug it in. But for her, for some reason, her phone, it like, it matters which way you plug it in. And so I just went there to be like, well, it's still under warranty. And I said, it's not a big deal, but you know, the USB-C thing, it's supposed to work either way. It doesn't work. It only works one way. And so I figured, you know, maybe I'd see if I can get it fixed. And the la- very nice lady, she was like, we'll probably just have to like, get you a new phone she was like the usb <laughs> the usb thing is attached to the motherboard so i don't think that can be fixed i was like okay we'll take a new phone that She's is like, such cool. a huge problem for everything it's like all these features that we never asked for and don't want and so when one little tiny thing goes the whole thing goes with it it's like it's like cars yeah it's like oh, remember yeah. back when everyone was able to just change their own oil and like yep. you can't do that anymore yeah you or when, like, you know, when you saw like dudes hanging out in their front in the, in the, you know, on a Sunday or a Saturday, they're, they're, you know, in your neighborhood, like people would fix their cars, but nobody yeah, does that anymore. Yeah. I mean, you crazy? guys have heard of right to repair, right? Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Wait, what's that? Uh, so it's a, it's a budding kind of like philosophical slash legal movement. It's basically trying to claw back. Um, it's basically a challenge to the, the, the concept of what ownership means these days. Mm-hmm. Um, like when we talk about buying a phone or buying a car or something, if you really unpack it, you're not re- you don't really get to own the thing, right? Because, uh, because of exactly all the things that you're talking about, right? Like if a single thing breaks, um, it's not easy to fix. You're still beholden probably back to the manufacturer or some licensed subsidiary for that repair. They get to milk money out of it. Um, you void, you often void your entire warranty if you try to do it yourself. Um, and a lot of the chain, like, especially if it's something like a IOT thing, an internet of things thing or whatever, like, um, you are dependent on their, their, their mercy for like updates, right? If an update mm-hmm. happens to brick your, your, your shit or whatever, um, mm-hmm. you're at their mercy. So in that sense, like in what it, is it truly ownership or is, or did we repackage like a rentier economy? Right. Jess so, has yeah, something important there. She called it a movement. So there's like little movements within the larger movement. Mm-hmm. Like a landmark case that I think uh, is still percolating through the courts, but uh, but it still was a win for uh, for this right to repair movement is a case uh, brought against John Deere, the agricult the the big agriculture like giant machi- like combines and tractors and shit, farm mm-hmm. equipment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they pretty much have a monopoly on uh, on farm equipment in some sectors. Um, and if something, and they have an in, a really parasitic, a really predatory uh, pipeline for servicing these tractors. So you buy it. So you pay a huge amount of money up front to buy this thing. But if something breaks, you have to call a John Deere technician to come to come uh, service it for you. Uh, you are dependent on their software. You are not allowed to tinker with any of that on your own. Um, mm. I think they can. I think they can not only they can like void your warranty, and I think they can go a little further than that too to actually take some kind of like punitive action if you do try to. Like, and those uh, combines and tractors have to be like what 
What's the price range for those? They're huge. I don't know, but it's a significant amount of money. Like maybe the scale is a little different because we are talking like big, large scale agriculture here, but like Mm -hmm. this can, but this can impact like small farmers too. Um, So regardless of the price, like they have an extremely predatory extraction model for like maintaining and servicing these, uh, these, these, uh, this equipment. Um, so the the challenge was brought. Like, in what sense have we actually bought this shit? Right? We don't have the right to repair this, despite despite the contract saying that we own this. So it's a it's a like it's something that I don't think a lot of people. We were kind of encouraged to not think about that. It's a problem that isn't even like it's not that we're it's not it's we're misdirected. Right? Hey, phones like, are I, like that. That's, phones it, are I like mean, that. I was, I was going to talk about where... Apple. Yeah, where the phones now come like they're dipped in molten glass and the whole thing's like completely hermetically sealed. And if Mm -hmm. any part of it goes wrong, you know, you've got to get a new one. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's funny because Chris Chris told me that he took his his MacBook to Rossman Group. And Louis Rossman is like that, you know, he's a big right to repair name, right? Like he's big on right to repair. Yeah, Yeah, so Louis Rossman rants about this all the time about how... Apple's business model is exist basically to screw the customer because, you know, anytime anything goes wrong, they set their repair. But like you have to go to Apple to get it fixed because no one else is going to be able to very mm-hmm. few shops are going to be able to do it. And the you know, the 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 amount that they're going to quote is so high that oftentimes what they tell you is like, you know, it's better to just get a new one, which is yeah, really that's what that fucker do. at the Apple store told me. Yeah, he, he said it was my fault. For uh, <laughs> not taking care of my laptop, which is only like three or four years old, and I take really good care of myself. Okay, so Rossman Group, they basically, my H key uh, malfunctioned, and Apple Store told me it would cost me five hundred dollars <laughs> to fix it. Rossman Group did it for free because I was swap- uh, I was uh, fixing my battery, so they were fix um, you know giving me a new battery, and they just threw in that that for free. So uh, fuck Apple. Um, I'm glad they got that class action lawsuit. They lost it, even though it's like pennies to them. It was only $50 million. Something else I've been noticing is when I'm thinking like big picture is that the villain in like most big blockbuster movies, like if you're watching Jurassic World or like Glass Onion or anything like that, the villain or like Don't Look Up, for example, the villain is like, it's Steve Jobs, right? It's like a Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, like like Mark Zuckerberg. It's a tech guy, right? That's who the villains are. It's always the little guy versus the big tech guy who has an obsession with like innovation and and he sees himself as a, some sort of like creative guru and he's obsessed with spying on all of us all the time, you know? It's yeah. like the same guy over and over again. The, though, you know, the thing is though, yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. But the thing is, and maybe th- we can segue a little bit into, you know, sort of our own personal interests in, in sort of de-digitizing, which I think is, uh, like you said, uh, a movement. Um, although I don't know if it's it's called that or anything, but I, it's, like you said, it's a lot of different movements, that I, but I think they're all kind of pointing in the same direction. Mm-hmm. But I think, like, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, I think we have to blame ourselves because, you know, you, you just see, I mean, when you, I saw people like camping out to buy the next version of the iPhone, <laughs> you know, or, or, or people, you know, just like, complaining about social media on social media right (laughs) like we're so we have so overbought over invested into digital technologies that personal brand personal brand. yeah i mean literally just people recentering their entire lives online that (sighs) i 
I feel like we only have ourselves to blame. And so in a way, we've got to find our own way out. Like, I don't think we can rely on um, there being, you know, some sort of uh, corporate or government, you know, solution to all this stuff. I think we're just going to have to literally abandon technologies, uh, you know, these these smartphone based Online We're technologies a, business, a very specific business model. So in this framing, like I know all the villains are like these these tech guys and stuff like that. Um, but if you think about like what the solution is, um, there can never be a person at the top like that who can fix this particular problem. Which kind of means that a person it's a person like that as uh, as as evil as he might be. Um, was not the heart and was not the source of the problem to begin with, right? Um, I think a lot mm. of people go a little far, too far and say, okay, it, there's something fundamentally evil about the technology. So we kind of basically have to roll it, like we kind of have to be like proto-Luddites, right? Like neo, neo-Amish, um, basically, right? Like there's something just fundamentally evil about the nature of like technology itself, Um it's kind of interesting because I was like thinking of uh, Tolkien. That was a major part of his uh, his his uh, his work here. Like he was a veteran of World War Two. You know, um, like the one of the lar- like uh, sharpest rollouts of technology. Like trans was like, it World War One? Maybe World War One. But anyway, like I he. I think it's two. I think for I think for Tolkien it was two. No. Okay. Well, one of the world um, wars. One of the world mm-hmm. wars. So basically, he was. I mean, he was. He was born before then, of course. So you know, mm-hmm. he was witness. He was part of that extraordinary generation that witnessed basically a one eighty shift of of in of modern society, basically well within one generation. Like he watched. He was he was probably able to watch like horses and carriages slowly mm-hmm. disappear from the streets, and then like not even in middle age see like airplanes dropping well, bombs. Okay, but where do you? Okay, Tolkien imagine if it's what, your first time ever seeing an airplane and like you die because of it. Yeah, that could, that's probably <laughs> happened. Like World War One, like farm boys who grew up like 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 taking care of the the like the horse that pulled the plow. <laughs> they're getting gunned down with machine guns or like <laughs> like fighter planes like that's it i can i can see how that's just a like like that's just a total mind fuck um i'm right, going a little uh, too far on that, yeah, on that yeah, let's let's ground this in a little bit more like personal experiences first and then branch out because i think okay let's start with the uh teen you getting uh the the twin lens reflex camera which you uh, a bunch of us at Planet. We got you for your wedding, uh, which thank you, you know, everyone. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it was a great event in in the history of twenty twenty two. And so I've had a couple of film cameras for several years now. One that I frequently brought out, especially to kind of special events, like when we went to Copac or you know whenever um, we went camping or stuff. I had a Nikon F three uh, and a Zorky four. Uh, the Nikon I use more because it's it's in better shape. And you know I I just. I got it on a whim kind of in like 2016, I think. And, you know, I don't use it often, but, you know, I use it enough and I, and I noticed that teen, you really liked it. So I, I got a bunch of guys together and we're like, hey, let's uh, chip in and got you this Yashica A, which is, as I said, a twin lens reflex camera. It's like one of those cool cameras with the two, uh, what do you call it? Twi- it's like two a double, lens. It's like the double barreled shotgun of cameras. Yeah. It kind of yeah. looks like a, like a carnival camera. That's how I was looking at it. When, <laughs> when, you know, uh, it, it looks very cool. Um, Anyway, so, Teen, like, why don't you... Because you, I think, only really started using it 
rather recently, right? Uh, yeah. Like getting at development stuff. So yeah, why don't you tell me, uh, tell us about your experiences and you know, how it's different and, you know, it's it's how it's more than just, yeah. hey, instead of, uh, f- like there's a difference, right? Using that versus a digital camera. Yeah, first I'm super late to the film game because I didn't know Liza was big on uh, film photography way back. Oh, right, yeah. So, wait, wait, Liza, yeah. what cameras do you have? I'm just Yeah, what, is, what does Liza have? I use a Pentax and an old Canon that my dad gave me. Wait, a Pentax K1000? I have a Pentax from the 90s that I got when I was in high okay. school and taking darkroom photography. Oh, cool. And then I took darkroom photography in college too. Um, my dad gave me an old Canon that he uses. And when my kids take pictures, I only allow them to use film cameras. Oh, wow. They're wow. going to be, be so cool. When they were young, I started them on um, disposable cameras and Polaroids. And now they're moving into like 35 millimeter. And if they want to take pictures, it's got to be film. And then they have to understand that like, you know, you only have like, 24 exposures or wow. 27 exposures, cool. 36 exposures. Wait, you got to so, be really so careful Liza... and deliberate when you take the picture. And then, you know, the era of the one-hour photo is gone. So now you have to wait two weeks to see your pictures. Wait, wait, wait but weeks? Liza, you, wait, you're the only one then. If you took, if you took darkroom photography oh, as a class. Oh, and also, when, when I got married in 2008, um, we demanded that our wedding photos and our wedding movie be shot on film. So the wedding pictures <laughs> are on film. And the wedding video is actually 16 millimeter and Super 8. Wow. If I were a wedding There's photographer, only, and I'd be the only one guy so in the world that did that. And his name was Zapruder. Well, now you can. <laughs> what were you but, no, so, but if you took darkroom photography, then you're yeah. probably the only one out of us that has like developed film and you worked in enlarger and all that stuff, right? Like you were doing, mm-hmm. you were doing prints and stuff in the darkroom. Um, and that's really cool. I would like to do that next. That's the thing I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. But to Chris's question, I, I, this is a very interesting question because I, I, I go online and I do a little research as to like what is fueling this resurgence in film photography. And the reason I know there is a resurgence in film photography is because trying to buy a roll of film is it's super pricey right now. Oh my and, god! And uh, the, the reason is because like, yeah, for eight pictures, it's twenty dollars. For that, yeah, yeah. thirty-five millimeter standards about fifteen to twenty. You for, have to be for, so precious about what you shoot. Yeah, so it's costly because well, one, there's not as many labs, but two, that I mean, for the development side, but just acquiring the film, there's just a lot of demand, and so the price has gone up. And um, and I looked online, and it, it's yep, that's true. It's just there's a resurgence in it, and cheap at Target. So just keep that in mind. What's Anyone that? Listening. It's cheaper at Target. It's. Polaroid Polaroid film and like uh, film film is cheap film at Target. Film. Oh, I didn't know Target sold cheaper that. at Target than it is at um, on Amazon. Okay, Target's Target's uh, doing some so, crazy stuff. Target has this like nail polish, this manicure machine. <laughs> like you basically stick your hand in and you get like, like a robot will like basically three D print a manicure onto your hand. Oh, Where wow. do it's they have a couple it's locations, a, but it's yeah, it's, it's nowhere insane. near either of us, right? No, it's it's still experimental, but it's like that. It, that's like it's like, huh? Something's going on at Target HQ. They're they're really uh, oh, the Vietnamese nail salon people are going to be against. Oh no! That. Oh no! <laughs> the sort of the nail industry. The <laughs> We're gonna have to go jihad on that on that <laughs> nail machine. Yeah, but I think that. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people talk about how film force because of the cost and whatever the, the you know the limited number of. Uh, shots that it forces you to think more about it okay but I, you know i don't 
I think the difference, it really has to do with digital, meaning like there's something about digital images and digital anything that eliminates the concept of an original Mm -hmm. because once you digitize something, the concept of an original is gone. There is no master image. Just like if you record in digital, like we don't like all these podcasts that we do, there's no original, there's no original recording. And there's no podcast. There's no plan a masters in a vault somewhere. Yeah, there's no masters in a vault. And, you know, and I sent around that article. I don't know if you all had a chance to read it, which I thought was a brilliant article because it does go into this, which is that there is something about the existence of a master. And when you're dealing with film, there is a master negative. Mm-hmm. And as that article said about these tapes, these master recordings of, of musicians, that is the that is it. That's the, you know, as good as as you can get in terms of fidelity is that original and as good an image as you can get is that negative you can never do better than that mm-hmm. image but that's the information side of this that's like the quality of the image that's an issue of quality that's an issue of fidelity but i think there's like a sort of like almost um like not spiritual but like there's a feeling involved in knowing that there's an original because it it you creating something one of a kind, and I think that just gets lost with digital in a way that it, no matter how many pictures you take, no matter how great the images are, you don't have that treasure of an original um, artifact. And I think that that's something and that's missing, which is why people anymore. are kind of going back. That's what I think is driving it. You know, I think, so. I think it's a fundamental I think kind, kind of, of like physical right alienation. Um, and you can tell like exactly, and I can tell um, the truth of what you're saying because that was entirely at the heart of uh, NFT mania. Uh, there was a fundamental like like yeah, like that's contradiction, that's yeah, in that because they were trying to uh, art make exactly an art what NFTs were trying to address. You're right, yeah, yeah. And um, and aside, I'm, I'm not here to bag on NFTs or that whole bubble. I'm simply like responding to what it was, what it was stirring up in people. And you're right. You're right. They are seeking that one of a kind, the some grounding point, some foundation point that like this is the origin point for this piece of work, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that anything past this point is a replica. It's a copy. Right? The same yeah, way rep- that like right. the same way that a Picasso at auction will sell for like a billion dollars, but you can buy a print for like two dollars two bucks on Amazon or something. Yeah. Like that That's is the I- that that is the ground zero for this work. People were seeking that, but the problem was that they were seeking to do that on a thing that is infinitely replicable at the same fidelity. Like whatever happened, like any reproduction of like a Picasso, a, a Picasso, a Rembrandt or something is a, is a reduction in quality from that original. It's not never going to be a hundred percent true to the original. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, that's that tiny little Delta that, that, that makes such a huge difference. What they were trying to do is, is a, a thing like, like digital art endlessly replicable at the same fidelity an infinite number of times mm-hmm. and somehow trying to still create that sense of art or value. So it speaks to the human need, right? The need to have some kind of grounding in something and to go back to like all the way back to when you're talking about, you know, um, like going to the store to fix this phone and they're saying, well, 
Um, it's kind of like, it's in a way it's kind of saying this phone is endlessly replicable too. And that's what happened. Like, like these commodities are so cheap that it's actually still wor- more worth it to Google to chuck the phone that you brought in and just give you a brand new one. <laughs> Fun- functionally infinite from the perspective of the end user. So mm-hmm. it is creating a bit of an alienation. I remember like loving the phones that I bought, loving my devices, because there's a sense that, this, you know, there might be, you know, that there's that, that, uh, what is that? Uh, is that a saying at this point or whatever? Like uh, there, there are many like it, but this one is mine. <laughs> you know, like there was so still wonderful. that sense. Yeah. Now it's like, everybody has the same thing. It's functionally mm-hmm. infinite. Uh, this right to repair thing implies that like, there is no, there is no interiority to this device for me at mm-hmm. this point. Like I'm mm-hmm. in trouble if I try to try to seek it out or try to make it my own past what I am allowed based on the contract that I've, I've you know, signed with this, this, uh, this device or service provider. So it's basically cutting any human component out of this relationship that we all depend on for a big portion of our lives now. Yeah, I mean, to push back um, a it's bit a very on alienating what feeling. You wrote. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say uh, to push back a little bit on what you guys said. I will say when I do develop my film photos, I used to get them printed until I realized that. So it, I didn't have a scanner at the time. I have a scanner now. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just easier to just get them scanned. So I, I just developed them and scanned them. So there's actually no physical copy. So uh, wh- while you guys were saying that, I was thinking, like, are we really thinking about is there a, a master copy that is the most pristine and um, unadulterated form? And every every time we share it with someone, is it being degraded and, and it's devalued in that way? I think that... It might be true on a subliminal level, but I also think it's true that whenever I take uh, film photos of people, they, they they really love it, and it's different. Like it's yeah, not do. even about the quality of a shot. Because I think if I took just my phone, I took this like beautifully lit picture of someone, they would like it, but it'd be like, okay, that's cool, and then they probably would never think about it. But then if I tell them, hey, uh, remember that night I brought my camera, I took this picture of you, and I sent it to them, uh, it kind of like. You know, I can just see their faces light up. And why is that? Is it because it was like, okay, I only have like 24 shots or like 36 shots of this. And I decided to spend this one on you. And people so rarely unlike, see themselves in the printed form now. We're so wait, used again? to people are, it's so rare. It's such a novelty now to print your pictures. And to like, but, but I'm saying I'm not printing these pictures. I'm sending them by email because I don't have the printed pictures myself. It's all scanned. Oh, I but see what you're the way I shot it was, as I said, it's not just on my phone where it's just like, there's a I human have, warmth in it. That's in right. I, it's like, I got like camera. 10 well, gigabytes I, worth of space. Like a cell phone picture. Well, right. yeah. and, I, no, and, I think it's fine. That, well, I think it's fine that you're digitizing them and then sending them as digital files. But what I'm saying is, and I do think it is subliminal. You're right. But the point is that people, you know, people understand more or less how a camera works. And they understand that at the moment you took that picture of me, there was like a physical process that happened that created the negative. Yeah. And there was pe- some kind of sacrifice that you made, being that you had. Uh, like 36 exposures that you paid money for that you will have to go and get developed and you decide to spend that on me as opposed to this endlessly uh, erasable, uh, reformatable, whatever hard drive that you have on your phone or your digital camera, you actually, there was like a, like a cost to it and you, and you, and you paid it to me. And I think that's what people are really appreciating. 
Yeah, but I think that the co- yeah, I think there's that. But my but what I'm trying to say about the the there being a master image is because it's the that the film they, there is an understanding I think a subliminal understanding that when you take a film photo of someone that there is a piece of film out there with them on it and that is it and mm-hmm. it's a unique it's something that happened that's unique and even if you scan it it's not the image itself it it is just a copy of that negative and that negative and this is I think that this is what the um that article about the master tapes was getting into because remember, so there was this big fire at universal studios in Hollywood that mm-hmm. destroyed like 200,000, you know, master recordings of you know, everyone from like Chuck Berry to Louis Armstrong to, oh, you know, shit. I mean, just insane loss. Wait, when was of, this? Hmm? 2008? 2008. Oh, yeah. And, and they try to bury the story. So I, universal like, was like, Masters for the Beatles, Elvis, like the biggest names. Mm. Uh, this was some it's like Western. miscellaneous fire. This is like like the it's American like, culture. Yeah, mm-hmm. Lost, and the originals right? are just and, gone. And so there was a great investigative report in the New York Times about it. Um, not that long ago, it was you know ten years after the incident, and they found out that Universal had really suppressed this because they were saying they understood that this was a major loss, but they didn't want other people to really, you know point the finger at them or 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 you know hold them responsible for this loss but their point was the truth of it i'm not sure but the point was like look all of these all the relevant information in these tapes has been digitized and backed up somewhere right so there's no loss the information's there it's like if chris had built up a uh you know an entire file cabinet of the negatives of the of the shots that he took and then it burned you know and those negatives are gone but you know, well, hey, no loss because I've digitized them, I've scanned them, and uh, you know, there's no loss. But I think, and and this was something that this is the part that of the article that I was really kind of uh, really picking up on was, you know, it's not really just about the information, right? It's not really just about the image. It's this, I, it's the fact that the tape or the negative is a physical artifact from of a, of that event. So right. that think tape about, was in like, the room. Think about like if your grandparents' wedding album got burned. Like, yeah. That's it. Yeah. The fact that I digitized that album doesn't really, uh, you know, really fix the loss because those, those, that album is a physical relic that has, gives me a direct physical connection of sorts to that, to that original. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, once everything gets digitized, I think, you know, and they say, this is a kind of a cliche, but they say, digi- you know, the internet um, eliminates distance. And I think that's true, <clears throat> but it doesn't make everything closer. It just eliminates the concept of distance. And so we get this weird vertigo sense where we're, we're like, I think when we're swimming in a digital world, everything from the very get-go is digitized. <clears throat> I can't really put myself in any sort of direct physical relation to the original because... There's no, first of all, I don't know what the origin point is. Like, you know, w- what is the origin? What, like, you know, when it comes to a shot that Chris took, the or- the origin point, the zero zero point, is the is the negative. It's the piece of square that the light, that the image from the light, uh, that the light from the image, sorry, um, first impacted onto this piece of plastic. It was there in the room. 
mm-hmm. and the distance between me as some someone that wasn't there in that moment is my physical distance or my relationship to that negative and maybe it's i'm one print removed away from it you know but it the event lives on in a way in that relic and if that relic's gone then i don't have any physical connection to that anymore mm-hmm. and i think with digital there's just there's no origin point where's the original there's no concept of original and i can't even i can't even place myself in relation to say the first copy of that because there's no degradation so every copy is the same as every other copy and so people just you know you're getting a lot of information about these events like when you see photos in online like in the newspaper or whatever i mean they're super high resolution the colors are you know absolutely perfect and i can see everything but i don't know like I don't know if what I'm trying to say is coming across uh, very well, but it's like it feels robotic and cold. It feels put it in everyday non-physical. To put it in everyday behavioral terms, I have a lot of photos I took on my phone. I have like lots of folders. I almost never look at them. I do look a lot at my film photos, even though they're all digit like they've been digitized themselves and they're on my computer. There's something about it because I can often remember the exact moment I took them because it was very deliberate. There Mm -hmm. was, as I said, a cost to it. And I look at them again and again. I really cherish them. Whereas I have folders of like hundreds of digital photos I took mostly on my phone. And I'm just like, sometimes I look at them like, oh, I totally forgot I took this. I where when was this again? You know, stuff like that. Yeah, there's a detachment to it that's kind of inherent to the medium because uh, for one thing, it's not a very direct, um, it's not a very direct, there is no connection to tangible reality, right? Like, uh, like to take the case of photographs here, like uh, this is going to this has had serious impacts and will continue to have serious repercussions for us as a society here going forward, especially now that AI is all up in the mix on this doctored photographs. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Once it's digitized, it's endlessly, you know, a, like you can tweak it endlessly. Right. And I think uh, I think I've noticed that, like, even professional photographers, um, like they deprioritize the actual craft of photography, n- knowing that a lot of stuff can be fixed in post. Um, I won't speak over yeah. the photographers in the room, but like that's kind of just like I've been following photographers, some photographers for a very long time. And I've kind of noticed that, especially on the rare occasions when they post like a before and after shot. Um, mm-hmm. Like the before is garbage sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then they, they really just became really good at like commercial photo editing. They shoot um, for the edit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, like it enables them as professionals to create work faster, I guess, and then just rely on fixing it to kind of recreate the vision that they had in their head. So at no point would I say that it's not art, right? Because they, they are like, they are using their own taste, their own creative skill to like manifest an image, but there's no way to say that that final image had was exactly what uh, this person saw at the moment that that photo was taken. Um, this has repercussions for people, especially when you're trying to like uh, when when you're when you need to do forensics on this, right? When this photo has repercussions mm-hmm. for someone, um, like in a crime case or your or you know a libel case or something, right? Film means like like God forbid, Chris, but like. Uh, like, let's say a picture gets someone into trouble or something, and you are directly accused of, like, manipulating it or something. You can whip out the original and say, no, like, this was the original. 
anything past mm-hmm. that, I that was that's 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 had nothing to do with but, the picture that I actually took. But but also what I'm getting at is that <coughs> the there and, and it's the, the it's not just that. I mean, Chris is saying that it, he looks at it more because you know there was more of a cost to it, right? Um, but but I would think that. But I would it. think that like, the same would be true. It doesn't really to me. I don't think it really matters uh, so much, like what the cost of film is, or what the cost of of. Um, I don't mean price. I mean more like uh, the fact that means- I used up something of limited. Uh, yeah, like the the, the 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 physical limitations of that medium yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. mean that Chris had to invest more of himself into the taking of this shot than no, I know. like well I'm saying had, like, look we used to live around. in a world where you didn't you know we didn't think much about taking photographs because you know we were a wash and cheap film and one hour processing right this was it wasn't Polaroid special was so like in everywhere. the 90s. Man, this is some like back in grandma's day. You'll never, you'll never yeah. guess. No, what but we I had. remember when yeah. you could go to Costco and just drop off your film, and you know you'd pick up like loads of prints, and nobody gave a shit about this, right? But we were wealthy. That was we wealth. lost it. Yeah, we've yeah. lost that. And well, here's my point: is that we had it so good, and we trashed it. We had it so good, though everyone was using cheap point and shoots, and they, you know, like people weren't using these nice SLRs like they were in the, you know, like they, they were. Just, I actually prefer the way the cheap point shoots look. The cheap point yeah. shoots, yeah. I, I mean, love compared it. to the digital cameras or I, the SLRs. No, like I, I will still buy a disposable camera and bring it on vacation with me and take pictures with it. And oh, then when we get the charm, pictures yeah. back, we're just like, God, they look so much better still. And it's like, it's this, is like a, this is a disposable camera. Uh-huh. But, so I think I, 4K but, is a human rights violation. Like no one should be seen in 4K. Or HDR, that garbage. H- no. Well, no, but That's, here's the thing. Like, like the... The the camera that you, uh, you guys bought me, it's this. It uses medium format film, and the image quality on it is far better than anything can, uh, out of out of like say a Pixel six or seven. Like the, the image is, is yeah, super definitely. good. So you've got fidelity, you've got image quality, but that's not really what is to me personally. And I suspect that this is in play if if uh, subliminally or subconsciously maybe, but I do think that there, this is in play. The reason, and I agree with Chris, I tend to look at my film photos of which I'm only have a few right now, but I look at them a lot more. And there's one shot in particular that I took of my wife and my in-laws while, while we were on vacation mm-hmm. is because like, I know when I'm looking at the scan of this photo that I'm really looking at a piece of film that I remember that piece of film being loaded I remember mm-hmm. taking the pressing the shutter. I know at that moment in my head that the you know like that moment in time I know exactly what happened and that piece of film was the thing that was facing that 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 event, you know, and and all the feelings that was going on at the time. And I'm looking at a relic or like an artifact that was created at that very moment. Like it was there with me Mm -hmm. and you just can't get that sort of like, there's just something very uh, like, there's just, it just kind of draws my attention. I'm very like fixated on that picture because (coughs) it's not the digital image itself, but it's that I'm looking at a scan of, I know my, I know the removal between me and that moment. And I, and I know how it works because I'm looking at this like scan of a, a negative, and that negative was the actual film that was in the oh, camera that, at that point. Yeah. And yeah. not just and that, so, but mm-hmm. I'm sure at, at the back of your mind there was the threat of failure. You might have 
chosen the wrong settings. It could have been washed out or uh, underexposed or something. And then when you get it back, you realize, yeah, everything hey, went right. I did something right. I did something right. As opposed yeah. to a, a digital thing where you can just, you know, chimp out, where you just like, you just take a billion, uh, you know, you can bracket a, a billion shots or whatever. So there is a sense of accomplishment that I think a lot of people You're, these days lack because, you know, everything's just hand fed to us. I'm trying to, I'm trying to push this in a direction to say that, Yes, that's all true. Like everyone, uh, there is definitely all this thing about slowing down, trying to getting things right, not being able to f- instantly correct mistakes. Or in the case of phones now, I think they call it computational photography, where the image is actually altered as you're taking it. Right? There's no post. There's no concept of post anymore. All mm-hmm. the c- color correction is done instantaneously, and they'll even defocus. You know, the background. And they'll yeah, sharpen the face. Yeah, like nighttime yeah. photography. It's not nighttime some. It's, it's entirely software. It's nothing. Yeah. It's nothing mm-hmm. revolutionary about the lens or the sensors involved. It's mm-hmm. just that the, uh, it's the algorithms. The, yeah, yeah. The yeah. software that renders that image just got very sophisticated, recognizing this is a nighttime photo. These, this is a line. Should probably sharpen that line. Yeah, um, and, and also there's no longer like this this shutter mechanism in the camera where it's like click that's it that's the moment it's it's keeping the sensor live and the aperture open the entire time as long as possible and, actually yeah, yeah and so it's just no... it's just it's actually taking a video and then mm-hmm. building a picture out of the video that it recorded right so yep. it's a totally oh, yeah, different yeah. thing that's going on and we mm-hmm. don't know like we we have no idea what's going on we're just like, in the, do you but, guys remember like the big um like uh maybe maybe i'm just maybe it was just in some photography circles but like like photography competitions and stuff being re- like especially in the first days of like photoshop being really really concerned about rooting out like doctored images altered images yes. there was a huge like philosophical yeah. debate about how much editing is too much editing mm-hmm. um Definitely raged for a long time. That has completely died down uh, because a like there, given how we render digital images now, you can't actually like before you could actually do some forensics to tell if an image was doctored. Um, uh, you can't anymore entirely because of how we render digital images now. So there is no there is no way for anyone, a, a human or a machine, to be able to tell. Uh, just looking at the pixels, whether a, th- a thing has 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 been quote edited because it's basically been edited from jump. There is no mm-hmm. such thing as like classical photography when we're coming when we come to digital images anymore. Um, yeah, and, so and compa- it's, it's very that, academic. But compare that to, I think the easiest way to maybe the better way for me to explain this is like just just forget about you know photo- like what we do as regular people, but think about like the great art of the world. And there's always a concept of an original, right? Like mm-hmm. we see, you know, a million images of, you know, David, but it's a totally different thing to stand in front of the David, you know, um, in Florence and see mm-hmm. the thing, not honestly, not even because it's so great, but because like, that's the actual piece of marble. That's the one that the artist touched. Exactly. You're sta- mm-hmm. I'm standing, the only thing separating me from Michelangelo or whatever artist, you know, we're talking like about. 10 feet of space. Yes, exactly. And time. Right. You know, but physical distance now has been eliminated between me and this artist. We're looking at the same block, literally the same molecules that. Mm-hmm. Um, he touched uh, to that. That, that, yes, that I ran over him. those curves. Yeah. He, and it's weird. Yeah. You know, it feels like being starstruck when you, you know, when you see mm-hmm. um, a really famous painting. Like I went, you, I went to go see Starry Night 
uh, not long ago at MoMA. And you're just, it's so bizarre. I'm like standing, I'm like, this image is everywhere all over the world. Everyone's seen it. It's been printed on placemats. And yet here it is. It's artwork that people will get on a plane to go see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like this, there's no better print. There can't, there's no better reproduction. Like this is it, but it's not, look here, here's the weird thing is like standing in front of it. Like it's it's a different painting. Well, it's underwhelming. Yeah. It's smaller than I thought. And it's not, I can't actually see as many details in it as some of the insanely like beautiful, you know, well done scans and prints and stuff where they've really brought out detail, you know, standing there in front of it may not be the best experience of this image that you could possibly get, but it is the spiritual aspect of like, Oh shit, those are van. That's Van Gogh's like, that's his brushstroke, you know, like Mm -hmm. that, the, there's a piece of canvas there. Like he stretched that canvas. He bought this thing, this canvas, he, this is it. This is the thing that came from him. And so there's always an art, clearly, you know, an understanding that the original, there's a, something very special about being in, in front of it mm-hmm. that cannot, no matter how good a reproduction we can make, and we can make, I think, better than perfect reproductions when it comes to, like, say, paintings, because the painting itself often looks kind of old and dirty, and they have these really great ways of scanning and photographing these things that look even better than the real thing. So it's not even the best, you know, experience in so far as just looking at the picture. But I do think it's just, it's just this communion where you're like, I feel close to these great artists in, in a real sense. It's almost like you're standing in front of the artist. And the proof of what you're saying, um, we can see it in music actually. Uh, sorry to cut you off, but just something oh, no, occurred no, to me. Um, yeah, like, uh, so Spotify gutted, you know, music distribution and sales and all of that, right? Um, uh, like, artists get paid nothing based on, mm-hmm. like, digital, like, sales or, um, like, streaming services. Uh, so, like, concerts, touring has become, like, the biggest uh, moneymaker for them. For all all big names, Um like I think, I think I read the touring is how most artists actually make the bulk of their earnings. Uh, digital sales and street and like royalties from streaming is like entirely secondary. Um, uh, and it's it's if if it were true that there is no value lost, right? It's like a digital a digital recording is just the same thing as being there in person. People wouldn't be paying like obscene amounts of money to go see these people in concert. So the emotional truth of what we're saying is kind of evident. Uh, maybe not so much in like visual art yet, maybe, but like look at music. Like people want, pay like top dollar to go see like Adele or you know whoever your favorite. And, and stars let's face are. it, they're they're not going to sound as good live as they do on these like you know mm-hmm. these these record these the CDs or whatever that they put out these streams that they right. put out because those are totally you know their best take. And, you know, everything's error corrected and pitch corrected. They sound perfect. And then you go watch them in concert. And honestly, they don't sound as good, but it's still a much better experience. It's a different experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To be close to them. Because you're seeing something real. And to be, to even, like, even seeing the imperfection is part of the allure there. Uh, Despite, like, a, a more perfect rendition of that same piece of music, you have access to an infinite number of copies of that. You can listen to it as many times as you care to. Um, but chances are, if you want somebody who does want to listen to that recording, uh, that much also would pay top dollar to go see them in concert. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, I, I don't, 
I don't want to abandon like imagery and stuff, but I, I also want to introduce uh, typewriters before uh, you know this episode ends, uh, because I think sure. that I'm biased because I'm you know I've, I'm more of a I have a more of a like writer mindset than than like a visual artist mindset, but I think typewriters are even more extreme in that it totally changes the way you you express yourself because I mean what's its counterpart these days is your computer or your laptop and. You know, as different as digital cameras are, or I guess maybe phones might be equal, but you know, a digital camera, you can't like go on social media on, on your digital camera, at least not yet. But, you know, your laptop really is your portal to the entire digital world. Whereas a typewriter, you can only do one thing on it. You can only write. And we see a lot of writers or wannabe writers always complaining about, you know, distractions and stuff. It's like, no, you, you get a typewriter. It's the only thing you can do. You can look at it. Uh, but there's only one way and you can only go forward. Maybe you can white out a few words or there, but you cannot jump around. And I mean, teen, you recently, uh, had that experience in which, yeah, you just got a typewriter and, and you wrote a short story, which I read and I really enjoyed and I hope you do more of it. And I think getting a typewriter really helped, right? Yeah. I think, be- I think because I was thinking about this, like I've never written, uh, anything of that length in that short amount of time. And it was like, when I got the typewriter, I was just like, just, I just couldn't stop typing on the damn thing. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons is because I noticed that like, it, you're, you're just forced to commit, right? So the first word that you pick to start a sentence, like you're stuck with that word, more mm-hmm. or less. I mean, I guess you could go and white it out, but it, you know, what are you going to do? Every, every sentence you're going to do that? <laughs> so you, you develop this sense of like, if I pick the first word, I'm stuck with it. And I got to make the best out of that sentence. And then you start realizing that, like, the quality of a sentence is not determined until you finish the sentence. So, or you're in a paragraph or the entire story. It's like, enti- yeah, exactly. It's like it, it's, of it's, accomplishment it, it keeps going. It's the end of a line, too, when you hear the ding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? there, it's, it is a very rhythmic feeling of being on the typewriter that ding comes periodically and then the clack of each key comes. And you know what it feels like, Liza? It feels like talking. Yeah, you know, talking is very rhythmic, and I can't delete something that I've said. It just, mm-hmm. I just have to commit every word that comes out of my mouth. I can't go back and take it back. And I don't know how the sentence. Sometimes I don't know how the sentence is going to finish, but I just say it anyway. And the problem with writing on a computer is you keep trying to aim for perfection. The, the um, computer at every because sentence you just, because you can just delete anytime you want. And then rewrite it. It allows you to just clear your throat like a million times. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it just That's doesn't like- have that sponta- spontaneity. And I always felt that every time I was writing something on a computer, it it just was felt dead compared to if I was just talking to a friend and telling them a story. <laughs> and the we typewriter, have a typewriter at the house really but it was my dad's old one, and now it's just it is a um, it's basically just decoration in the study now because I'm afraid to to use it. <laughs> It probably still works. These things are sure, tough machines. Yeah, yeah, first of all, team. Uh, break. First of all, team. What's, so what's your old. typewriter? What's what's your what kind do you have? It's an Italian. So one? it's an Italian typewriter called the Olivetti Latera, and um, thirty-two, right? Latera thirty-two. Thirty-two, yeah. yeah and that's, it's, that's, I got that's it a real custom good machine. from Italy. Yeah, yeah like they a, had that's to. A real good machine. It's really cool. It's all. It's not great for English because it doesn't have a lot of English of the, you know the regular English character um, special characters like no dollar sign and no asterisk and it wasn't qwerty they had to like the person in italy i bought it from had to 
switch some of the keys around, which is another thing that you can do. You can tweak these things, you know, like I couldn't only you could do that with yeah, a computer. Who needs a letter E, yeah. But that's another thing. When I got the typewriter, so I, I'm, I'm a pretty fast typer, typist on, on mm-hmm. a computer. And I realized if you try doing that on a typewriter, it'll jam. It, like all it'll the keys jam. will strike at yeah. once and you got to pull it back. So it's like, okay, you got to slow down and you got to hit with quite a bit of force. It can't be like... Right. You know, like you know, these MacBooks I have—they got a butterfly keyboard. You barely have to touch it; it's, it's almost like touchscreen. You know, no, you gotta you gotta commit, and it's like that is symbolic of what you were saying. It's like, no, you gotta go all out. And it, it remind you guys remember that old movie Galaxy Quest where this like yeah. that like device <laughs> where you could reverse time by like thirteen seconds. So anytime you made a mistake, you'll be like, oops, and then you just go back in time. And I know we all wish we had that device, but. In reality, if we had it, it would make life a lot less interesting because anytime you fucked up, you'd yes. be like, okay, do over. But a typewriter is like, no, you got to live with your consequences, at least for that day, writing-wise. Okay, you started off with a cheesy sentence, make the best of it. Let's see what you can do <laughs> next day. Yeah, maybe you, exactly. Maybe you can improve it. And That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I first started you know, writing, you know, like just like actually trying to write, it, it, that fear is always, I got to make everything perfect. And whatever, and what got me over that, and, and this was on even on a computer, was just no, you know what? First draft, who cares? Just get it out there and then build from it. You know, you just need a foundation. You don't need to be perfect. And in fact, it shouldn't be perfect. Have fun, be corny, be uh, be cliche, whatever. You can improve it later. You know, nobody's first draft is good, and I think a typewriter uh, is even more like exemplary of that. Yeah, I, I noticed that I would write myself into a little bit of a corner on the typewriter because I'm like, oh shit, I, I can't go back now. <laughs> you know, and then you've got to, but then you get creative because you're like, wait, well, how do I write myself out of this? Or like, how do, how do I progress it? Even, you know, like, and I spent very little time, like, I didn't crumple any papers and throw it out. I was just like, fuck it. I'll just, <laughs> yeah, just keep going, you know? And um, I don't know. I just, it was just such a fun experience because. It has the same spontaneity as talking with someone where, again, there's no redo button, you know, in life when you're talking with someone, us doing this pod, which I think maybe one of the reasons why all, you know, it's been so many years and we're still doing pods is because maybe there's some analog uh, type element to doing something like this rather than just writing stuff, you know, especially digitally, because... I we never take stuff back. We never do like oh oh shit hold on we let me uh let me delete that let me start yeah. over. We're just plow- we have no idea how this thing is going to go before we start. I have no idea where we're going to go with it. And- I have murdered some sentences on this pod. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! The level remember of not conjugating the right um, verb. <laughs> remember how I pronounced the director of Dune. Chris? Oh, yeah. We Villa Nueve. Whole thing yeah. In there. Villa Nueve. I was like, I was like clapping, listening. Like, yeah, you go, girl. Yeah, you put that there. I didn't know how to pronounce that shit either. Yeah. You, <laughs> you really put yourself out there. <laughs> but yeah, probably. Um, I mean, have you guys ever gone to like exhibits of like uh like old writers and there's like a like an exhibit of their their papers and their drafts for display? It's so messy. It's so I've messy. I've seen some of like really Charles cool. Dickens stuff, and it's like, mm-hmm. how did this ever turn into a book? This is just this is crazy. Or yeah, like you look chaotic. at the Constitution. Like, you look at the Constitution. The you're like, how did anyone read yeah. this fucking thing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The biggest Finnish novel is like 700 pages. So goddamn it, how many drafts? He was handwriting that whole Christ. thing. Oh, like, my God. Oh, you wrote that with a feather? What? 
the chickens just ran every time they see you come through. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like, whoa. Dude, kill more chickens um, than Colonel Sanders. <laughs> but like, like I had a long afternoon to kill. Um, so I just, I think it was, uh, it, I don't know, I think it was, who was it? Mark Twain. Uh, now that this guy knew how to, this guy was, I mean, he's a prolific writer, but then his papers were on display. And obviously like, it's not even a typewriter. It's just like writing on, writing on a piece of paper. Right. Um, it was kind of cool to just look at a, a like page that he wrote and then mm-hmm. like seeing like the things he crossed out and then like notes he made in the margin or like mm-hmm. you know him moving words around or shifting a sentence or a paragraph. It's kind of cool to see, like you can kind of trace like, where his head was at so it's not even just like the page itself that you're valuing Mm -hmm. at that point you get to kind of get a peek into what was going through his actual head in putting this particular like passage together or something um that's and like that actually added a little bit of meaning i think i was looking at a page of like huckleberry finn um and he like he like reworked it so it was a little bit more like emotionally poignant for huckleberry to be going through like it was like it was like part of his whole like uh yeah he was he was on his raft and he was just going through something um and it just added a like a little bit extra like like pathos to it mm-hmm. um so, so you can see like what he originally wrote and then you can see like in the margins where he wrote like what he actually wanted like he like okay no 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 this is what i'm gonna do um uh, when i rewrite this in, a, in my next draft um it was kind of cool to see like that's an entire kind of layer of meaning to a work that we're completely losing at uh you know just passing around like fully like passing around like google docs to each other basically yeah. like what are you just, gonna do? just look um, at track changes um yeah just uh correct me if i'm wrong but the, was huckleberry finn the book where mark twain basically almost finished and realized that he he messed up and he went back and rewrote the whole thing i i know it was a mark twain book i think uh but yeah it, i think it, that's it was the thing like he that. was just known for right and yeah, and as a friend of mine, I mean, this is related. A friend of mine sent me this article. I think it was written a couple of years ago, but it, it was an article that was highly critical of Sally Rooney, the writer, and how her, not her just specifically, but you know, the, a lot of her type, their whole shtick is, oh, you know, me, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm no genius. I just like published this, you know, ultra popular, critically acclaimed thing, or or made this thing, or whatever, uh, and it just came so naturally to me. And then the I writer contrasted that. that with, uh essay that Rooney had wrote years earlier when she was not a famous writer talking about how she was actually the, the debate champ of either Ireland or Europe or something like that. And in it, she was just like saying, no, I want to be the best. And I, I tried really hard and all that. But then I guess when she became more famous, it, it wasn't fashionable to, to be a try hard. And that one thing that the, this whole digitized thing is it, it lets you cover up your footsteps, you know, all the, all the, you know, words you yeah, crossed out, right. all the mm-hmm. all the drafts that you say, you know, oh, oh, me, oh, yeah, my first draft. You know, this is yeah. <laughs> this silly little thing. You know, it's not I, garbage. I think, the, I think the problem is there's a there is, I guess, it's a sense of commitment because it's like when you're using some kind of physical medium to write, um, be it handwriting or typewriting, ty- typing it out. I guess those are the mm-hmm. two options, right? Um, you're you're making like. Phys- you're making some sort of physical change in the world at at you know on a piece of paper or whatever but it is like being fixed as you're going whereas with typing you know what do you you're not really doing you're literally just maybe moving around some electrons and those can be infinitely around it's kind of like clicking you know clicking um 
the beads on an abacus up and down, right? Like, yeah, you're doing something physical, but it's like very unfixed. Like none of it's fixed. All of it's meant to be temporary. The value of that click is not is zero. Right. Yeah. And the, the commitment of it is zero. It's, it's mm-hmm. all meant to be infinitely, um, you know, undoable. And, and that's not a that's not a ding, actually. I mean, that's this is exactly what the digital quote revolution and what the that, internet yeah. was for. Totally it's supposed to be a seamless pipeline, uh, where we run into trouble is trying to correct, like, place some artificial like corrals around this information, mm-hmm. um, and then tr- and then trying to lend like a, a value system to it. Like it's it's remarkable and it's it, it's extremely successful at the exact thing that it was supposed to do, which is simply allow people to transmit information from one from one place to another. Right, but that's I, it's I think, an amazing accomplishment. I mean, this is how I am talking to you guys a continent away in real time. Right, so that cool. same thing that brought brought us that is also also like basically lowered the barrier of entry of producing data producing information down to zero mm-hmm. which is um, good so which is good it's good but, i mean it, it's it's good in its own in, in its own way and for but, its own purpose but have you have you noticed that like and I, I saw this there was a commercial for um i don't know some like new new fucking laptop that is crazy it's got like know, some laptop right it's like some hot new laptop and there's a commercial for it where and you see this a lot with like new tech gadgets where they advertise it as essentially like a creative tool Mm -hmm. right and you know they'll have some famous guy i think they had like a famous architect sort of demonstrating how he would use this and you know of course he's you know in a coffee shop and like inspiration strikes and he whips out his surface pro five surface pro and he like you know sketches it out and then he goes to the office and he can like share that file and distribute it or whatever he can hold it up in a meeting and he you know, and there's this real fetishization of these digital technologies as being innate, enabling just feats of creativity that weren't no, it's possible the opposite. before. It is the opposite. <laughs> it is. The I, opposite. Don't you think things people are less creative these days? And I think Absolutely. this idea that yes, you know, this is the end of part one of this podcast. The second part of the podcast is available on our Patreon feed. Mm-hmm.